Welcome in, Fantasy Footballers DFS podcast. I am your host, Kyle Borgannoni, with always my bestest buddy, Matt Betts. Betts, why am I talking to you in the middle of the day, man? This is this is a new thing for our relationship. This really is. I love it. I, I honestly love it. I feel like I have way more energy. We are recording at about 1 o'clock Eastern, which is about 7 to 8 hours earlier than usual. But yeah, man, I had a new schedule start this week. More time to open up for football. So, as the kids say, wheels up on the Ballers DFS podcast. Now, this is a great part of the summer for you and I to take a step back. Last week, we talked about forecasting, and that show was super fun. Super fun just as a as a group and then listeners to take a step back and gain some helpful insights when you look at 10,000 feet above everything we're doing. So, this week, we're going to be talking about DFS and DFS mistakes. So, Betts, you and I will share some of our stupid moves, things we've seen people do that are stupid. And um, we've talked about on the show, there's a pretty simple strategy uh, about being an idiot and stupid. Do you remember what that is, Betts? I believe it is in the words of Dwight Schrute. If an idiot would do that thing, I do not do that thing. So just see what idiots are doing and avoid it, and you'll be successful in DFS. The problem is in DFS, I look back and I feel like I kept doing the same thing, the same mistakes. <laughs> and the the worst part is that we lost money. So that's what we don't want to do. We do, That's the mistake nobody wants to do is lose money. But on this show, we'll go through some of those mistakes. We'll also hit the mailbag. But bets, I wanted to switch things up. So very top of the show, dude. I want to play a game. I'm not trying to play too many games with you, bets, But uh, that drop. My heart rate. It's through the, the roof. <laughs> <laughs> that drop oh, is, is one of my favorite to do because I usually spring it on bets last minute, right before the show started. I said, hey, by the way, we're playing a game. So you guys can tilt along with bets. And I wanted to get us in the DFS mindset. So what I did, bets, is I pulled three different game lines from last year. So I picked three random weeks. I went back through our show docs. You know, that's what I do in my free time, of course, is just look back at those old show docs and just reminisce. But Three random weeks last year. So if you're listening in, just let's go back in time and I'll give you the game line and I bet I want you to just remember what happened, but I'm just giving you the, the story of what happened beforehand. So we analyzed these on the podcast last year, but let's go all the way back to week five last year. The Raiders were two and two and they went to Kansas City to play the Chiefs who were four and oh, Kansas City were 12 point favorites and the game had a 56 and a half point total. So it was clear that the Chiefs were heavy favorites. But what do you remember about this game? And what what would you have done if you would have had this line? If I had this line, I would have built my lineups around a lot of Chiefs with a high total. Obviously, they have a higher uh, implied win total favored by 12 points so two touchdowns. And then maybe brought a, a bring back on the Raiders side. I recall, is this the week that Henry Ruggs had his one long bomb for a touchdown? Of course, he did it against the Jets because the Jets are idiots. But this is the game where we were like, all right, Henry Ruggs, this could be it as a bring back. And he actually had the long bomb. Is that right? Yes. Henry Ruggs okay. did have a long bomb and he was pretty cheap in that game. But the Raiders won this game. If you remember. Yes, I was going to say the Raiders actually pulled off the upset. I recall this. Yes, the Raiders won 40 to 32. And... The best part about this game is if you would have stacked Carr instead of Mahomes. Although Mahomes had three touchdowns, uh, Carr went for 347 and three. Josh Jacobs had two touchdowns. And if you would have built your stacks around the Raiders and then maybe brought back with Kelsey, Waller actually didn't have a great game. But this was one of those games where you look at the line beforehand and it's very easy to see why the Chiefs would have been a favorite, but a contrarian GPP play would have said, hey, what if, what if the Raiders get ahead? And the Raiders actually do this a lot every single year. If you go back through Carr's game logs, he has one or two divisional games a year where he just goes off against the Chargers or the Chiefs. So it, unlikely, but it was uh, it was nice to see that 
hey, the Raiders could actually hang with the Chiefs. And for a while, the Raiders actually started off, I think they were six and two to start the year. Like they were, they were a pretty hot team. They were six and three. But let's go through this other game. Week 10, the Jaguars were one and seven bets and they visited the Packers who were six and two. The Packers were 14 point home favorites and this game had a 52 and a half point total. What would you have told people about this game beforehand? Put Aaron Jones in every single lineup. <laughs> and I did. And it didn't work. If I recall, this was the week that the game stayed really close all the way into the fourth quarter. I th- I think the, Pack- the Packers won. I would assume so. But I recall the game not even being like we all projected it like it's going to be a huge blowout. Stay away from the Jags. You don't even need to bring a, a bring back into this game. And if I recall correctly, is this like the Colin Johnson week? Did he have a couple touchdowns? Colin Johnson later on in the season had those. This was okay. uh, Keelan Cole scored in this game. Gotcha. But I recall the game being extremely close. Yes, this game was actually tied going into the fourth quarter. Okay, so it was tied 17 all. The Packers won this game 24 to 20. But it was one of those games where we usually talk about onslaught stacks where clearly Packers were favored. They had a 32 point team implied total. And so these are usually the ones where we say, hey, stay away from the Jaguars and just load up on Packers. And so Aaron Jones was like the player that week because the Jaguars were bottom three against the run, but no one really got there. Jones was a huge bust. Devontae Adams scored because that's basically what he did every single week. But other than James Robinson getting a ton of volume, this was a game that if you would have avoided, you would have done better that week. Do you know who the Jaguars starting quarterback was that week, Betts? Was that a Jake Luton week? It was Jake Luton. I wish it was <laughs> Mike <boy>. Lennon. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Your boy, Mike Lennon. <laughs> so, yes, it's just I want to give that example as a game where things looked on the front end like the Packers are going to smoke them. And this game was in Lambeau <laughs> and the Jaguars had one win all year. But um, anyway, last game. Week 13 bets. It was the Browns who were eight and three at the Titans who were eight and three. Titans were five and a half point home favorites, and this game had a 54 point total. Do you have any memory about this game? Baker Mayfield went absolutely berserk in this game. Was this his five touchdown game? I think he had a couple to like Rashard Higgins or Donovan Peoples Jones. It was like one of the ancillary receivers ended up being a huge GPP winner. And I actually remember you being on whatever player it is. I can't remember, but you were on this player and you remember uh, you on Sunday sitting on my couch watching these games and being like, Gosh, dang it. Kyle was right. And I didn't play this player. <laughs> and you're just sending me screenshot after screenshot. It's just like, great. Here's Kyle's print fest. And here's bets losing money. Uh, I do recall this week very vividly. Yes. And that wasn't to bring up that point, but I'm glad you did. Yes, it people. was. You liar. You no, liar. it wasn't. It, uh, so Baker really did go for four touchdowns. DPJ had a long touchdown. Richard yep, Higgins was. was the play that week that we kind of we brought it up, though, on the podcast. We both did. Um, but here's the crazy thing. How did Derrick Henry do in that game? Do you have any memory of that? I mean, I remember it being a like super high scoring game. And I, if I recall, he didn't have a very good game. Or maybe he had like his classic like 80 yards, but I don't recall him finding the end zone. Did he? Do you remember if it snowed that week? Well, no, obviously it didn't. It was beautiful in Tennessee that day. I remember Baker standing back there with the sunshine just glowing on him as he's dropping dimes over the defense for Tennessee, which was horrific last year. So I don't believe he had a good game according to the Vermont snow model. Yes, that is correct. So the snow model was pretty much perfect for the year. But I also want to bring this up. This game ended 41 to 35. Okay, so it hit the over, you know, sounds crazy. But if you go back and look, this game was 38 to seven at the half. Like the Browns were rolling and Baker spread the ball around. Chubb had 80 yards and a touchdown. Uh, Kareem Hunt was actually a huge bust that week. But also, who do you think scored for the Titans that week? Was the Ferk Daddy? I wish, I wish it was. I wish it was. Come on. Um, let's see. I mean, there's not many people catching passes there. Corey Davis? It was Cor- it was Corey Davis week. That was the week he went for 11, 182, and 1. And I remember that was the week yep. Mike Wright called that. He called Corey Davis, who was the number one wide receiver that week. But my point of bringing that up is the game script went different. The end total looks fine. But none of the players for the Titans really got there except for Corey Davis. So in order to really have done well with that game in a GPP, you would have needed Baker. You would have needed to avoid Derrick Henry. And you would have needed to basically say, I'm going to go Baker and maybe Rashard Higgins and then bring it back with Davis. Like that's how you kind of avoid it. So realize in every single scenario, you can get the points and your guys can still not get there. 
So those are three different games. And maybe I'll do that with a couple others bets. But how do you think you did? I'm actually surprised because those are games that I remember like watching and tilting because we either like gave advice on the opposite side of what happened or I personally had plays that went kind of with what the game script should have been. So like heavy Chiefs builds, heavy Packers builds, etc. So I remember uh, not feeling super happy <laughs> when these games were going on, which those always stick with you, I feel like way more than the wins. And we try to be pretty transparent on this podcast and also in our writing. Like you can go back and look at any of our stuff. We're not trying to change any numbers or tell you that we've got things more right. So it's really helpful in this part of the year for me to get a kind of sobering view of this is what actually happened last year. Cause you can paint over a lot of things uh, and see through rosier colored glasses of like, okay, I did better than I did, or I did better in projections, but it's really hard. And it's really hard to be able to do that week in week out because DFS is one week game. But this week we will talk about some of those mistakes um, this week, we will kind of dive into some of those, but the ultimate draft kit plus we keep pumping this up. And the reason why we pump it up is because we keep adding things. They just added the draft analyzer last week and Betts and I have continued to update our best ball primer. But as we get closer, you and I are going to keep putting out articles that are gated, that are DFS content only for the awesome people that get the UDK plus. So any quick words about UDK plus before we get into our segment bets? I think it might sound silly to be like, why would I why would I invest in this product in July? Like the season doesn't start for a couple of weeks. These articles that we're putting out are the foundation to how to win consistently. Every week on the show, we'll talk about it. And of course, in the, the DFS pass throughout the season, we'll talk about it and we'll give you guys advice. But like understanding how to play the game is how you win long term. And that's what we're going to do with these articles over the next several uh, weeks here leading into the season. So go get it. The price is just silly. Yeah, it's $60 right now. It's actually saving $30 off the in-season price. And I mentioned that because you can make that back in literally a week by learning some of our cash strategies. And that's what we've gotten the biggest feedback about is a lot of people, if they're first time, they get the UDK, they get the UDK plus and the DFS pass. And they say, oh, I made this back. This is a lot easier than just shooting darts. So we would love for you guys to do that. Go to ultimatedraftkit.com. But let's start off talking about some the mistakes that we've made. All right, everybody. That's what I'm talking about, guys. We've made a great effort so far. Let's just keep it up. That's right. We can't have anyone freak out out there, okay? We've got to keep our composure. We've come too far. Oh, what a great movie. Great movie. It's been a while, and it's been a while since I've seen that, so... Pulled up an old, old wooden ship. No, and not an old wooden ship. I pulled up a very old clip of old school and thought it would go well talking about winners and losers and you and I keeping our composure in terms of our mistakes that we've made. So we're going to highlight six of them. Uh, three of them we're going to spend a little bit more time on, but I think it's really important. But bets really quickly, DFS is a different game than redraft, than best ball, dynasty, anything else. Uh, because there's really easy parts in terms of the mindset and there's really hard things in terms of overcoming mistakes. So what would you say, hey, this is the best part about DFS if you're just thinking like how I approach it and then maybe what's the worst part? Yeah, the best part about DFS is that it's basically a six-day season. Like you have your Monday night game and then you start on Tuesday and I guess really five days. You roll through all the way to Sunday to the main slate. That is it. And then you can... You can, you know, be excited about your victories. You can be bummed about it for a day and then you move on like DFS. There is no like, ah, man, it's been four weeks. My team's awful. Like, what am I going to do each week? You reset and that has an advantage and a disadvantage because the best thing about it is when you have those down weeks where you just get crushed and we all have them. I've had them where I've entered far too many that I would like too far too much money that I'd like to admit didn't win back a single dime and then I'm like all right here we go I gotta start the prep next week again so it is a grind it is a weekly session but that's the nice thing about it is you're not done after one week it keeps going and then the best part about that is you get to be able to like learn from the week before and then move forward in it and a lot of people don't do that so use it as a learning process hit the reset button every Monday or Tuesday and get ready for that main slate on Sunday it's the best part of DFS Starting all over is an awesome thing, but if you haven't learned anything from the week before, then you kind of get into that gambler's 
uh, paradox where like, I lost it all, but if I keep going, I could win it all. And, and then you just kind of get caught. So the worst part about DFS is if you don't learn from your mistakes, you go into the next week and you may either repeat them or you just assume like, I'll do better this time because I'm just going to be better than the field. And that's just not true. You're playing against lots of people that are either professionals or they're putting in way more money probably than you are. So don't just tell yourself whatever story you want. If you look back at last week and you say, oh, I almost got there. This next week, I know I'll get them. Like that's not that's not gonna work long-term. So it's really important to kind of understand that on the front end. Like the best part and is also could be the worst part. Uh, it's kind of a two-sided coin. But I wanna start off by this first one, Bets, because I think it's by far the one that I make the most and I see the most in terms of DFS players and it's contest selection. It's not knowing exactly where you're supposed to put your money when you open up DraftKings or FanDuel and you see, ooh, there's a million dollar contest. And this is what I did initially, and maybe you could, you know, share too. But like, I remember when I first started playing DFS about five or six years ago, it was easy for me to say, let me sort by the total prize. I would just sort by whichever one had the largest prize and go, ooh, I could win the 200K one or I could win the million dollar one. And the problem with doing that is you're not actually seeing one, what is the rake that DraftKings or FanDuel is taking? But two, you have to take a different mentality based on the prize pool and based on what kind of game you're playing. So for me, I just struck out early on by just saying, I'm not even thinking about it. I see that contest a dollar, that one's $5, that one's $20, and not even thinking about anything else. Do you think that's pretty common? Yeah, I think that mistake is huge. And I think that people are making it a lot myself included when i first started playing like you it's so easy to log in and be like how can i get rich this weekend <laughs> that's what you do you log in you see who has the biggest prize pool you enter that contest but you're not really understanding that there is significant disadvantage to doing that there's also a huge advantage in maybe the point zero 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 one percent of the time it actually works but oftentimes it doesn't and because you have a bigger pool of people you're playing against you have to be perfect in what you're doing all those sort of things so when you just enter and say how can i make the most money in one day oftentimes it doesn't work you need to be selective in terms of how you play dfs and how you're successful in it and understand you know am i experienced enough to be able to build a lineup that can compete in this huge field or am i just getting my feet wet and i need to kind of start with these smaller fields that have maybe less payout but a higher chance of winning because that's going to keep you coming back to dfs and be excited about it not entering in blindly into the millie and all of a sudden being like well my entire bankroll is gone in three weeks now what it depends on what your goals are for dfs and the best part about this is you can do whatever you want you know, it's your money. It's it's the way that you want to spend your time. But I would encourage every single person to actually write these down. I mentioned this a lot, like putting something on paper holds you accountable a different way than the computer does. But why do you want to do it? Do you just want to do it for fun? That's totally fine. Do you want to do it because you want to add a little money to your bank account? That's totally fine too. Do you want to play it in a serious way where you're saying, I want this to be side income? And when you identify that, you can actually kind of cater the way that you play, the way that the contests you do to that. So for Bets and I, this was something that was super fun to now it's part of our schedule and what we do for our jobs. So there's a little bit more at stake for us in terms of what contests we're doing, but I'm not trying to right now currently trying to make this a, a source of income unless, you know, we win a, win a big tournament or whatever, but it's not something that I'm depending, my family's not depending on me doing this every single day but realize other people really are like, this is really what they're doing. And in terms of head to heads, you need to make sure that you're playing against people that are kind of in that same range of you. So that's available on a lot of those sites, DraftKings and FanDuel. You can actually see people's ranks and see how much they play. So make sure you don't jump in that way, but there's just different mentalities. There's a mentality with cash and one with GPP. And so in terms of contest bets, what would you say changes most in terms of our mentality for cash and GPP. Yeah, I think you and I are pretty much in agreement that we recommend to most casual players to start playing a lot of cash games. And what that means is basically you're playing a 50-50 or a head-to-head -head or a double up where basically you're entering a field size. Let's say it's 100 people, give or take one or two people. It's like 59 or excuse me, 49 or like 50-51 of the field actually win money that week. So you don't have to be perfect. You just can't be worse than half the people that are playing against you. So you, like, you have an availability to 
have an out, so to speak, if things don't go great, if the guy that you put in your you know running back one slot has an okay week, but he's not perfect, you're not dead in the water. So it really allows you to kind of understand like how do I build a lineup that can be successful and compete, you know, in these fields that are still relatively big, but you don't have to be perfect to win. And that I think can be both rewarding because you're seeing more successful weeks, you're seeing money coming in. And then B, you're able to identify, like when you look at the field, there's people that are entering like huge GPP, totally out there lineups into these like 50-50s. And you're like, dude, just play like normal fantasy football. Enter good running backs, a couple good wide receivers, good quarterback, and you're done. Like it's way more simple to build a lineup that way. Of course, there's a little more nuance than that, but um, it's way more easy, I think, to be successful in those cash games early. So we always recommend starting out playing primarily cash. And then once you kind of get your feet wet, you know what you're doing then transferring over into those GPP pools. Yeah, we've recommended the 80-20 in terms of 80% of your bankroll each week going to cash. And also, you don't want to play your whole bankroll right at the very, very beginning. You want to get used to things, kind of see where you're having some success and focus in on that. But you also need to look at contests that just have better positive expectation that actually, in the long run, you're saying, I'm going to do this. So I look back at my Millie Maker lineups last year bets, Okay. You know, <laughs> those are Spoiler. fun. They did not win. <laughs> I did not win those. Um, just to be transparent, I put in about $600 and I lost a total of $200. So I was down, uh, I was down $200, but you know, that's not terrible considering it's Millie Maker, but also it's very clear that wasn't actually one that's too positive because the people that do win the Millie Maker, they win it once and they're probably not winning the rest of the year. So just realize that there's not or a lot of ever for sure like ever again, <laughs> ever again. Like that's the, that's the reality is that it doesn't happen over and over and over again. It's once and then you're probably done. Yeah. So just, just know that on the front end that there's certain contests that are better. So let's go through the cash ones really quickly bets that you and I, we do these a lot and I recommend to people, um, head to heads and 50 fifties are what you should be doing. I don't know, 30, 40% of your bankroll every single week, in my opinion. And head-to-heads actually, in my opinion, are better long-term. They're not as fun because double-ups, you go, I just need to be better than 50% of the field. But head-to-heads, you're reducing a little bit of your variance because double-ups, you'll have week where you just get buried by the field and you get zeros. Where if you play a bunch of head-to-heads against a bunch of random people, you will have some of those that hit that week and some of them that don't. So it reduces the variance a little bit. And then you're really good at this, bets. You love playing the massive fields but single entries. You want to explain to people why those are good for cash. Yeah, what we're referring to is those like $10, $5, $25. They even have $1 double ups, which basically is, as the name implies, you enter five bucks. Your goal is to win 10. But there are 2,000, 4,000, 5,000 entrants in this contest. So people always see that and they're like, okay, how can I get so different than the rest of these people? When in reality, again, it's it's basically a head-to-head type of matchup. It's a cash game matchup where you're trying to put your best lineup out there, not trying to get super unique, super different, and off the board. And you look at the lineups that are entered in those contests, they are mistakes after mistakes after mistakes. So most of the time, if you are even somewhat of a competent DFS player, you are going to cash more weeks than not. That's how I started, and I still play in those because I feel like it's just easy pickings. Of course, there's variance, and you lose a week or two here or there, but like for the most part, that's where you're going to cash often, and I've been playing a ton of those just because you know it's not like you're going to walk away rich for the weekend, but you're going to be walking away winning way more than losing, and it's going to put a lot of confidence in your ability to play DFS, and then as well, what we're all here for to build the bankroll a little bit too. I look back at my bankroll this past year. And the reason why we share these things is not to boast, but just to give you a clear picture of like the process. But where I was most successful last year was when I was entering a dollar entries. And that may sound silly, but over time, when you enter a bunch of those, you're just going to be much more profitable. And so that's what you want in terms of your return on investment. I think that's just everyone's strategy in general. You need to be able to be okay with those small losses, but when you start to gain them, they start to, to aggregate. And so, you know, What's better? Is it like one $100 win you get once a year or just you keep getting those dollars every single week that you eventually can say, hey, I got four or $500 worth uh, of a return on my investment. And then let's give a couple of GPP examples. So when you're in a tournament, the easy ones to look at are the Millie Maker, but it's just 
not a good return on anybody's investment at all. They're fun if you have the bankroll and Betts and I still like, you know, shooting a dart in there for fun. But what are a couple of tournaments that you recommend to people? Yeah, I'm so this is probably a question more for you, honestly. I'm not a huge GPP player in general. That's true. I will dabble. I will definitely go off the board, but I am a cash game player for the most part through and through. I'd say like I'm even more like 90% to 10% cash games to GPPs. Um, if I'm feeling a little spicy, I'll go I'll go in GPPs. But on DraftKings, um, there's a 20 max, so you get 20 entries if you want to enter them. It's a $1 per, um, per entry tournament. It's called the First Down. That's on DraftKings. We like that one. And then as well, there's a 3 max, 8 to $10 entry that is a lot bigger. It's like 10 to 15,000 entries. Those ones are ones that I played in and you have as well. There's also a few that I've played on are played in, excuse me, that are more of like the smaller slates, like especially on like Thanksgiving and that kind of thing, like the smaller three to four game slates. I like those in the playoffs as well. You can find GPPs that are only like two to 500 people. And it may seem like that's not a great way to win because you're not getting as much money when you do win. But in reality, the competition is so much less because you don't have to, again, be perfect. You can still make a mistake here or there, or the field will make mistakes and you'll have an out in those sort of scenarios. So if you're asking me for advice on how to win in a 200,000 entry tournament, I am the wrong guy. That is Kyle for sure. I am more of the play the best plays type of TFS player in but those they, cash games. They both can be profitable and they both can be fun. And I think that's why you oh, absolutely make, make a good combo. But the ones he gave examples for are perfect, like the dollar entry 20 max, you're not having to put in the 150 entries like everyone else. I don't, most people don't have time for 150 entries unless you use an optimizer, which we do have in our DFS pass, but you can build 20 lineups in a tournament and you're only putting in 20 bucks. And I think that one, the, the grand prize is uh, $10,000. So you, it's still good. And $20 is something that you can play with. So that's a tournament we'll be doing. I know that I'm a part of usually each week. I, I like max entering that one. And then we actually have a contest with DraftKings every single week. So that's another smaller field. We're actually going to be expanding that a bit this year. We were around a hundred people each time. We're probably going to be at more 200, 300 this time, but it's still super fun because you can kind of get the feeling of I'm playing in a tournament against people that I'm listening with and you can still, uh, you can still win. So, and you can take Kyle's money. You can definitely take, take my money, do it. Uh, I would love for you to, all right, let's go through a couple other quick takes. Uh, this is a mistake that I've made a lot and that's called the early week take lock where you have your opinion made up on Tuesday or Wednesday and you just stay with it. And that happens a lot with running backs. I feel like this is the running back I have to have in my lineup this week. And maybe a better way to say that is I'd like to have this player in my lineup and I should have this player in my lineup, but not so much. I have to have Dalvin cook in every single lineup. I mean, I want to, but I also need to give some variance. So any thoughts on the take lock? I mean, I just think it's one of those things that it's so easy to avoid, but at the same time, it sounds like it's so um, enticing, right? Like you open your DraftKings app on Tuesday morning and you're like, how the heck is this running back $6,200? Like he should at least be 8,000. So already in your head, you're like, he's a value. I have to play him. I have to play him. But then each day we have more news, injury reports, um, maybe role changes in terms of running backs or wide receivers, et cetera. Things just change as the week goes on. And then by the time you get to Sunday, it almost feels like it's a whole new month. Like there has been so much more information that your inability to adapt to those things will make you unsuccessful long term. You have to be willing to change based off of the new information that we get, because there are people who are not following the NFL as closely as Kyle and I are, or even you, the listener are. If you're listening to this DFS podcast in, in July, you are a diehard and you are following the NFL way closer than a lot of people. So People are going to kind of get stuck in their early week take locks. Maybe they have a busy weekend with family or traveling. They don't see what's happening. So if you get stuck on your Tuesday take lock, it'll work out every now and then. But I think most of the times it's going to let you down. Just be willing to change your lineup over time. So Bets and I usually have a text that shows up on Wednesday or Thursday where we go, hey, here's kind of where I'm at with cash. And I've mentioned this to listeners before, but hey, here's where I'm at. And over the week, if we saw those texts, like things change and that's awesome. You want things to change. You want new information. You don't want to be stuck. So the early week take lock happens to a lot of people, but I feel like on the other end of the spectrum, you know, I usually, it's like I'm putting Dalvin in every single lineup. Like that's my take lock. And I don't think that's the worst thing you could do, but 
I tend to overthink cheap running backs because that's like the, the holy grail of DFS. That's like the free square. It's like the thing that unlocks everything else. Some people call it the skeleton key, whatever it is. That freebie that week, you know, Mike Davis is a famous example of somebody who's super cheap. You know, he's getting the workload. Everybody's going to play him. So I tend to overthink, and I do that in a couple ways. Either I have to have this player in every single lineup, or I try to get super contrarian bets and say, like, I don't need to play Mike Betts. Uh, Mike Betts. Mike <laughs> Davis. That was my boy. grandpa's name. <laughs> is it really? Yeah. <laughs> Michael. <laughs> Did you know your grandpa was going to get a shout out today? I had zero idea, um, but I'm I'm here for it. No, man, I'm with you. I think that that is a, a great one to give listeners a little bit of advice on. Sometimes cheap running backs are good plays, and oftentimes they are. Like You're looking in DFS at the running back position, especially to have projectable volume that's easy to see a path where they can get 15-plus touches. And when you get that reduced salary, it just opens up so much more for you to do at the quarterback, tight end, wide receiver position, etc., and I can think of one prime example last year. It goes back, and we talked about it in forecasting. Like, you cannot have biases in this game. I could not fathom people drafting Leonard Fournette in the round in round three of redraft leagues last year. And that was in August. And this is like October, November. I'm still like, Lenny sucks. Why are you guys playing him? He's 4,500. I get it. But like, the Falcons have a good run D. They're throwing the ball a ton. He's not going to see the touches. Through three quarters, I look like a genius. And then all of a sudden, Lenny falls into the end zone. And I mean literally falls into the end zone. <laughs> Nothing athletic happened. But he comes away being the correct play. So like you have to identify again those biases and be willing to say, like, I know this isn't the best player in the game, but he's so cheap and he's going to see 20 touches. So he's probably a good play. Um, and I think that's probably the, the rationale to take for people when they see that cheap running back pop up in cash games. For the most part, it's a good play. In cash, you're basically saying, what do I need this player to do? So for a player that's 4K, which is the stone minimum right now on DraftKings, you're saying, I need this player to at least 3X. I want them to get their salary times three, which is 12 points, okay? And anything over that I would love and I think could totally happen because they're getting a workload. So I would say I, I need at least 12 there. And you're hoping for a lot more in a GPP. If they're not getting, you know, if they're not 6Xing on that, then maybe they're not the right play, but they're also saving you a ton of salary to unlock other players. So that's just the, the factors, the questions you need to ask is, do I think Mike Davis is going to four or five or 6X this week on his salary? And is he is he someone that I need to have in my lineup? And that's a that's a hard question to answer on the front end, but it's something you and I do every single week. Yeah, for sure. And we'll be able to walk through that with you guys because each each week is different. And sometimes the answer is yes, play this cheap running back. And sometimes it's like, mm, there seems to be more downside here. We can go ahead and fade him and hope for the best. I I've, remember I faded Alexander Madison, but I totally said I am not going to play any Gio Bernard and Gio Bernard did awesome. So it's both sides and you're going to see examples every single week. Um, and that's okay. All right. This is last two that I want to or last couple that I want to talk about bets. And this one shows up a lot. It's the lack of real correlation and stacking forethought that happens in lineups. And I think most people know about stacking. We've done episodes on it. There's content on our website about stacking. You know, you want your quarterback with a pass catcher or a tight end. Like this just makes tons of sense. But why do you feel like this still is a mistake that people make? Yeah, I think, you know, people know that they should be stacking, but sometimes people don't know how much they should be stacking or you know, do I double stack? Do I stack my quarterback with my wide receiver? Or is it just with the running back? Or do I do both? Like, there's a lot of different scenarios that can play out. And people, I think, sometimes get stuck on, like, this is the quarterback and this is the wide receiver pairing. Okay, check the box. I'm done. But there's also other scenarios where correlation exists a ton between, let's say, a tight end and a quarterback or a running back and a quarterback. Like, uh, Ryan Tannehill and Derrick Henry last year. It seemed like there was a ton of correlation there. So I think people are just getting so stuck in the mindset of it has to be a quarterback, it has to be a wide receiver, and then I move on, where you can also think about the stack in totally different scenarios, You know, whether it's with the tight end, running back, maybe it's a team stack and you go onslaught like we talked about. Maybe you bring it back to stack the entire game. Maybe you don't. It just sort of depends on the scenario in front of you. So I think people know to stack, but there's still a lot of mistakes out there because people don't know, I think, 
maybe how to correctly stack or optimally stack, so to speak? There's a couple of simple questions you can ask yourself with correlation. And, you know, one of the basic ones is if this player hits, who else benefits and who else suffers? So I'm going to use the Bengals as an example. Last year, Joe Burrow and Joe Mixon had extreme negative correlation, like extremely negative, meaning when Mixon had his big games, it was because Burrow also did not have a big game. Like they were inversely correlated. So when Burrow had big games, Mixon did not. And they didn't have a ton of games together because of injuries. But in the small sample size we had, it wasn't the right move to say stack Burrow with Mixon, where Tannehill and Henry, you may think, wow, like there's no pass catching there. Why would I play those two? But they actually were positively correlated last year. So that's one example. And then you can also think about it on pieces that we usually don't play. So Betts, Hayden Hurst, was he a big time awesome player this past year? No, no, he was not. (laughs) He was bad. (laughs) And I hyped him up because of the vacated targets and the opportunity. And he got some volume, but it was just empty stuff for the most, most of the part. But Hayden Hurst and Matt Ryan actually had a really strong correlation last year. That's 0.83. All right. That's so the highest you could get is one. So that's very, very high. It's extremely high. This isn't telling you that if Matt Ryan has a good game, Hayden Hurst has a good game. This is just simply saying, if you have Hayden Hurst in your lineup, you probably should have Matt Ryan. It's telling you more about Hayden Hurst. And when he has a good game, he's going to be supported by Matt Ryan. But just because Matt Ryan had a good game didn't mean that Hayden Hurst did. Um, Instead, it was mostly Calvin Ridley for most of the year. So it's important to understand which part of the stack you need to play. Or else, if you played a bunch of lineups last year with just Hayden Hurst by himself, not stacked with Ryan, it was a dead lineup. Like, it wasn't helpful if you go back through his his game logs. Yep, can't confirm. (laughs) It was bad. So uh, I know there was a game that you and I was Chiefs and Jets, and that was a week that I remember Denzel Mims was the popular player that week. Like he was super cheap. Uh, he was super popular, but that was one of those weeks where you had to stack it a little differently with everyone else. Yeah. That week that you're talking about is it was week eight last year, chiefs against the jets. The spread was massive. Chiefs were expected to blow them out and they did not surprised. No, no one's surprised 35 to eight. But the issue is that people, I think sometimes too, when you're thinking about GPP stacks, People sometimes think that they need to just target the highest over under. And then what is the closest spread? Because in theory, if it's a one score game, these offenses are going back and forth, left and right. And all of a sudden you have a track meet and it's fantasy gold. Does that happen? Sure. Sometimes it does. But there's also scenarios where people are afraid to play one side of a game for in this example, the Chiefs, because they think, okay, well, if the Chiefs blow them out, like maybe Mahomes isn't throwing in the fourth quarter. Well, guess what? If they blow them out, it's because Mahomes had an awesome first, second, and third quarter. That's exactly what we saw in this game. Um, in the Millie Maker that week, Mahomes was 8% rostered. Tyreek Hill is 15%. Mikkel Harmon was 8.7. Demarcus Robinson was 2.3. And Travis Kelsey was 9.7. So for those five main players, not including CEH, who had an awful week, were sub 10% against an awful defense. Those are great players, and that's an awful defense. It seems so simple in terms of being like, yeah, fantasy football success, 101. Play the good guys against the bad guys, and it's going to work out. But people are afraid to do it when the game script doesn't look like it's optimal. But it will work in some scenarios where you can go, you know, like a full Chiefs onslaught in this example. And then you project, okay, in that game, like if you want to bring a bring back, you could have done it. It wasn't sexy, but in DraftKings full PPR scoring, you could tell yourself, Braxton Berrios is going to catch eight balls for 80 yards and 16 DraftKings points is sweet. That will work in the GPP. And it actually worked a lot that week. So those scenarios, I would say, don't be afraid to get different with your stacks, especially when you look at these Vegas lines, for sure. We'll talk more about different ways to stack and kind of how to get different uh, as we get closer to the season. But you were mentioning some of those roster percentages. And I think this is another thing that I see as a big mistake in my own analysis sometimes over the years, but it's not factoring in roster percentages. And what I mean by that is how many rosters is this player on? Um, In the past, people called it ownership projections. And in our uh, language, we just call it roster percentage projections. But for us, we use our roster percentage projections as a guide, uh, but it's not gospel. It's not perfect because we're guessing ahead of time what, where we think this player will be in terms of roster percentages. And it's a, it's a science. There's a lot more behind the scenes in terms of how we do that. 
but the main thing that I want to tell people is to not force this as the only way you look at your lineup. Some people say, this guy's super popular. I don't want to play him. Well, you have to think, why is this player popular? And um, and that really matters. So how do we actually factor in those projections bets? You want to explain that? Yeah, absolutely. So in the DFS pass, we use the buzz report, which, as it sounds, gives you the players that have the most buzz in a in a week. So like, you know, there's everyone on Twitter, everyone on podcasts, everyone everywhere is talking about Tyree Kill this week. Okay, we know Tyreek Hill is going to be popular. Everyone's talking about it. People are consuming this content. You're not the only person that's consuming this content. He's, he's a good player for a good reason. Everyone wants him. But you have to be willing to kind of use those reports and say, okay, now I know this information. What do I do with it? And so I think really the take home for this section in terms of the mistakes that people make is that people think that they need to get different at the running back position. It's actually really positively correlated with higher roster percentages and salary that those running backs are very rarely outscored. Like you, you talk about a seven, eight, nine thousand dollar player. That's your Christian McCaffrey. That's your Dalvin Cook. That's your Saquon Barkley, etc. Very rarely is someone that's five thousand dollars going to outscore that player. It just doesn't happen. And so when you're trying to get cute and get different and be like, oh, I, you know, running back, I'm going to save some salary this week. It doesn't usually work. Actually, looking back, I use fantasy labs for this. I looked at the top ten finishes over the last two years in the Millie Maker. More than 50% of the time, basically, or right at 50% of the time, those top 10 finishers were using more than $6,500 on their running back one. So very rarely are you going to have a lineup that's like two min price running backs and then super expensive wide receivers that finish in the high, you know, optimal lineups. It just doesn't happen. So I think even though you may see these roster percentages of like, well, Christian McCaffrey is going to be 80% this week. Is that a bad thing? Maybe not. Maybe that's fine to just take the chalk and run with it because it's obviously a you know, good play in that scenario. The reason why somebody is good chalk is because you there's very easily projected opportunity and we see that there's a number of routes to success. But a bad chalk, you can say, hey, I see about three or four routes to failure and there's not a big enough gap in terms of the roster percentage where I need to you know, fade this player. So for instance, me, I'll bring up Joe Mixon Joe Mixon last year, there were some weeks where you said like, this is the week and it didn't pop because there's so many other factors. It's the fact that the Bengals are bad. Like, there's just a bad team. He's not going to get as many rushing attempts or he's not going to see as many targets. Uh, it's just there. But then there's also routes to success where you say Joe Mixon this week, when he went off, he went off for 42 points one week. That's that was because nobody was really playing him. They were fed up with Joe Mixon at that point. And he became a good play. So we talk a lot about good chalk and bad chalk. And the biggest way is to ask yourself, what are the routes to failure and success? And you have to kind of weigh that. Like, do I think there's more routes to failure or is there more routes to success? It's a perfect way to put it. And I think in general, when we talk about bad chalk, it's often going to center around the wide receiver position most weeks because we know that running backs you know, it's so easy to project someone for 15 plus touches, sometimes 20 plus touches for a wide receiver. You may project them for eight targets, but if they walk away with four or five in that particular week, but on the season long, they're a volume monster. Well, you could have just run into bad variance or bad luck in that specific example. And everyone was on them and it's so easy to fade them in that scenario. We tend to see just scoring in fantasy for wide receivers. It's way more up and down throughout the year on a week to week basis. Whereas running backs, it's just you know, very, very easy to project. So I think in general, wide receivers carry more bad chalk most of the time. Yeah. And I tend to fade popular wide receivers as much as I can uh, in GPPs, because really what you're asking for a popular wide receiver is he's got to get there and his quarterback's the one who got him there. So I usually look at that and say, I'm going to be under uh, the rest of the roster percentages, like on this player. Like I just, it's too popular. And I want to bring back up that example I mentioned at the top of the show, that Tennessee-Cleveland game bets. I went back and looked, and A.J. Brown was the receiver that week that everybody wanted to play. He was at 19%, which for a wide receiver is pretty pretty high up there. Corey Davis was at 6%. And we only know that now in hindsight analysis, like who was the better play. But based on those numbers and based on what we just talked about, Corey Davis was a not just a dart throw, like he was actually a good play. He was a solid play in terms of the over-under and in terms of looking at the roster percentages. But a good dart throw, like if you're throwing a dart on Rashard Higgins, like we talked about, you have to figure out if there's correlation. And wide receivers are the best thing 
when it comes to dart throws because it really could be anyone. That week, it really it was DPJ, and that dude hadn't really done anything uh, that year. But why is it so important to nail that part? Like if you're playing in a tournament, wide receivers, why is that so important to nail that part of the of your selection? Yeah, again, I went back and kind of looked through the top winners in the Millie uh, and looking at the top 10 finishers that the quarterback position, the average roster percentage was just at 7.7%, sub 8%, like a contrarian play, if you want to call it that. It's not the chalk play. Wide receivers, same thing. And it sort of correlates, right? Like we talk about stacking. If you're stacking quarterback with wide receiver, wide receivers came in at less than 11% in roster percentage. So the the most you know most optimal lineups the ones that win the most and of course there's going to be an outlier here or there but the ones that are quote unquote the best lineups for tournaments tend to have these these wide receivers that are not the you know optimal play that week they're not the best play they're the Corey Davis as opposed to the AJ Brown and it's not to say that you can't mix in a popular play here or there but just be willing to get weird and get off the board especially in tournaments because you're basically hoping that the rest of the field is taking what is projection as fact when we know there is error in that projection. Clearly, Corey Davis and A.J. Brown are a perfect example of that. I think that's a great rule of thumb for GPPs is to look at your quarterback. And you mentioned the average was 7, 7.7% last year. Just say to yourself, if any quarterback gets over 10%, that's really, really popular. I mean, that's for quarterback because it's kind of flat in terms of roster percentages. But kind of say, hey, I need to look around seven and a half percent or less. And then you'll also see some stacks that pop up that are just, nobody's really talking about this week. You know, if it's Kirk Cousins, it's like, why is Kirk Cousins hanging out at three, 4% in our projections and no one's really talking about him. So you can be on players like that when no one else is and bad dart throws. You know, we love hitting the dart throw. Like I loved rugs one week. Like I, we, we were all over that, but being contrarian is not about limiting you know, your routes to success. Like you actually have to say, I actually have a path and the ones that are really narrow are narrow for a reason. Like there's a reason this player is not going to do anything, uh, the entire year. So just make sure you understand that like Olamide Zacchaeus, the great Falcons wide receiver that everyone loves. Future Hall of Famer, of course. Of course. There's very limited paths for him to be successful in best ball. I, I just, he's, he's someone I really haven't been taking at all. Apart from an injury, for Ridley and Gage, like he's just not, he's just a dude. And I'm saying that as a Falcons fan, but you have to factor that in when you look at contrarian plays. And then one last step for roster percentage is add up, add them up, add up what you think the roster percentage projections in our DFS pass and say, whoa, this is a really popular build. You know, I have a guy who's at 40% projected, a guy who's at 25%. You want to, in a GPP, you want to hang out around 110% to maybe 120. Um, And if you really want to get crazy, you can drop below 100. But when you start rising too much, you realize that your players are just just like everyone else. You don't have very many paths to success that way. Um, And then in cash, I try to tell people, don't worry about adding up your projections because in cash, like you are going to have a more popular lineup. But when you start approaching 40 to 50%, that's like major decision time. Like, am I going to fade Derrick Henry or am I going to fade Aaron Jones? Those kind of decisions are, are super tough. Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it. Um, I don't really add them up at all in cash. That's just kind of how I've approached the scenario because like I said, in the ones that I play in these single entry, huge field um, cash games, I just I just know people are making mistakes. Like there's just too many people. The variance is there that you know people are going to make mistakes. So as long as you're playing some decent plays, chances are you'll be fine that you don't have to really worry about it as much. But like Kyle's saying, that roster percentage, cumulative total, adding up the quarterback, adding up your two running backs, add your wide receivers, et cetera, et cetera. If you keep it at that 120 or less mark, you're going to be way more successful than someone else that's like, hey, look at this lineup. It's sweet, but it's 150% total roster percentage. Well, guess what? So is everyone else playing that lineup. So that's how you get different. It is a key, key point in DFS. Last thing that I want to talk about, and this will be quick uh, before we get in the mailbag, it's the mistake of lying to yourself, Bets. It's lying to yourself about how much you've won and how much is in your bankroll. And I think every single person does this. We have a bit of hubris. We like to tell people a better story. But what's crazy is we tell ourselves a better story. So Bets and I have a spreadsheet 
that we think is super helpful. Uh, this year, I'll be using a tool called Roto Tracker, which I think is really intuitive. It is uh, actually pretty cheap. It's only $45 for the whole year. And they did not tell me to say that. I literally... Hashtag not a sponsor. Not a sponsor, but it's really great. It actually shows you your return on investment. And it gave me some insights like, wow, I was killing it with the dollar entries. But when I stepped it up to about $10 entries in cash, um, it wasn't as profitable. And so I started to realize like over time, I was just better. Like I had a really good return on investment when I was doing those dollar entries. And there was a certain point when I saw with the Millie Makers, this isn't profitable for me in the same way. So I'll probably be doing that a little bit less this year. And it's just good to stay accountable. Like, I don't want to say like, oh, because you see the green, right? You see the green at the end of the day and it says you won $100. But what you didn't find out is that you put in $600. And so you're actually down 500. <laughs> yeah, don't worry about that. You just ignore that part. <laughs> they, they do that for a reason, you know, the sites, because they want you to feel like that feeling of like, I won, I won, I won. They're not actually always weighing it out in terms of what you put in. Um, you could figure that out very easily with a spreadsheet, but it's super important. And last year bets, that was, that was pretty fun for both of us. Yeah, for sure. And I think this sounds silly. It's like, oh yeah, that's obvious, but it is very easy to fall in that trap of like, yep, I definitely did not correctly identify, you know, where I was at with my bankroll and each week I'm winning. So like, let's keep it rolling. Take a step back, evaluate, see where you're at and then make your decision from there. Yep. And if you need help with some of that stuff, we'd love to give you some of our resources, but you know, I plan on doing that with best ball. Like I have a spreadsheet that says, here's how much I've entered and I can see my return on investment. Uh, this is what I do in my season long leagues with my friends, which, you know, is not too much. And then this is what I do for DFS as well. So it's super important to at least stay accountable to yourself, um, above anyone else, but let's get into a couple of quick mailbag questions. Mailbag. Yep, another live mailbag drop. And I only have a couple questions for us today, Bets, but I think they are pretty good in terms of following up with what we talked about. So I'll I'll read this first one. I think you can take this one, but it's from Blaze Swift. He said, spending your salary on DK or FanDuel, I've always felt like I need to spend every last dollar or have about 100 or $200 left over max. How do you approach this? That is the right move. The... Data from Fantasy Labs shows that when you leave money on the table, most of the time, your top optimal outcome as far as finishing in the top 10%, it plummets pretty quickly. So the cutoff that I found is about $49,600 on DraftKings. So you're leaving about 400 or so max on the table. I'm not leaving less than that in any given week for the most part. And I will say that applies primarily to these main slate lineups. And, you know, the three or four or five game slates as well, it applies to that. But when you look at like showdown, we'll talk about showdown at a later date. Too much to get into for this part of the show, but it is okay to leave salary on the table in those scenarios. But yes, in these kind of main slates that we're talking about, you want to spend most of your money um, and sometimes you'll spend all of it. Nope. You hit it right on the nail. Main thing is you have money, you should use it. And in showdown, that's when you need to get different. So I'm excited to talk about that in a couple of weeks. Next one is from Brandon Hilliard at Brandon Hilliard zero. He said, what's your strategy for when and how to use backups or players with a larger role due to injuries on the main slate for DFS in order to have some exposure, but somewhat be somewhat contrarian. So I think he's asking about some of those running backs that you and I mentioned uh, players with injuries. And we could even touch on wide receivers because sometimes a player's out and someone's kind of thrust into a bigger role that week at a cheaper price. So what do you think about backups? Because they're backups for a reason, you know, on an NFL roster. They're not awesome. <laughs> wow. How do you really feel, Kyle? <laughs> um, that's a great point. I, I, honestly, it is. These guys are backups for a reason. That said, if there is a running back that is min price, 95% of the time, it's going to be a good play because you just know he's going to touch the ball a lot and he'll open up a lot of volume. So I'm willing to play them in cash games almost every time. In GPPs, like Kyle and I talked about earlier, maybe you want to get a little different and not play them. But if you do want to play that player, let's say it's Tony Pollard and there's no Zeke. We know he's been successful without Zeke in the lineup. So it makes sense to be like, I know everyone else is going to play him, but his salary is 4000 this week. He could easily put up 6x his salary and he could smash you if you don't have him. Like everyone else has him. So you're just, you're, you're done at that point. 
So if that's the case, in those specific examples, you just need to be mindful of the total roster percentage. You can't also play chalky wide receivers and another chalky running back and the chalk quarterback of the week. Otherwise, it's just too much roster percentage. So it's okay to play those quote-unquote optimal plays sometimes, but just be willing to get different in other spots in your lineup. Look at what the median projection is in the DFS pass or the fantasy footballers and ask yourself, if it's a running back, is he going to see 15 touches? And if he is going to see 15 touches, how many of those are going to be receptions? Because if the game's like out of hand, then maybe they can rack up five or six catches and get you in a spot where you're going to be okay regardless. But running backs can be super efficient or inefficient. Sorry. You've seen it with Saquon Barkley where it was like, what, 10 rushes for one yard or like you can have that in a week. And so with some of these backup players, opportunity is king, but also realize they can be super inefficient with the ball. So give yourself some scenarios of asking if this player doesn't hit, do I need to use them? And I would say for wide receivers, it's rough because you want five, six targets. Like if you think you can get five or six targets and someone's super cheap, like Betts and I are going to be talking about those kind of players all year that are around 3K. Like we love putting those players in our lineup because you're only asking for a little bit. Like a 3,000 wide receiver, you're asking for, I don't know, you know, six points, eight points, nine points. Like you're not asking for them to kill it for you in cash and you're saving so much. So any any other thoughts about being contrarian though to the field on these players? No, I think so. I think, like you said, it's it's okay to use them if they're good plays. And we talked about, I think earlier in the show, like what is a good play in terms of chalk versus a bad play. Usually wide receivers, not so ideal. Running backs, it's usually okay, but just be willing to be get, getting different elsewhere. And again, that total roster percentage at the end of the lineup is really important. Last one is from Connor Sheldon at Connor D. Sheldon. Says because cheap dart throws are primarily a GPP play, how do you each like to save salary in cash lineups? So bets in your cash lineup, what what are some particular moves or strategies you have to save? Typically for me, I'm looking at the quarterback position to save some cash. It's uh, it's always fun and it's easy to be like, this is the week. I know Mahomes is going to go crazy. I know Lamar is going to go crazy, but they're usually up there in salary where. You can't get the best running backs. You can't get the top wide receiver or two in your lineup. And so I think for me, like I'm always willing to spend up at running back. That seems to be more optimal in cash. I'm more willing to spend down at quarterback. Maybe not the the bottom of the barrel. Maybe not a Mike Lennon, so to speak, you know, Kyle. Yeah. But I will do it for like a lower tier player, maybe like a Kirk Cousins, et cetera, for example, if the scenario is right, if the matchup is right, et cetera. Um, so I have a safe salary at quarterback. And then there are rarely scenarios where wide receivers that you're able to play like three studs that are like six or seven or 8,000. It just doesn't happen because you want to play these running backs. So I am willing to take a couple quote unquote dart throws, maybe not really in the sense that we're talking about GPPs, but just players that I know are going to be on the field and see some targets that are three to four to $5,000 that like Kyle said, you're not asking them to win you the week. You're asking them to go out and get you 10 DraftKings points to get there in cash. So one cheap wide receiver usually in my lineup, and then a quarterback as well. I love, love the strategy of the punt tight end. Bets and I usually mention them on our show, but there's just something about getting a tight end, you know, less than 3K. Last year, we talked a ton about Irv Smith. I mean, we we talked about him every single week. Um, there were some big wins for us. Tyler Croft was one of my favorite. The week he caught two touchdowns. So there's players like that, and that just opens up so much of your salary. But realize with tight end, you know, we think about the differentiators being like Kelsey and, you know, obviously it used to be Gronk and Kittle. Like those players are differentiators. If one of those players is off the main slate, okay, and you really only have to, you know, go between Kelsey and maybe Waller or maybe just one of them, maybe it's just that week, Waller's the only one on there. I personally in cash will say I will punt the position and just take the L because I can configure my roster way differently. It's just different than redraft. In redraft, you feel the weight of getting complete trounced by that. In GPPs, I will play someone like Waller because they can just go bananas and outdistance yourself. But punting the tight end is, I think, something that people still don't do enough. Uh, the problem about punting tight ends, though, is that you're hoping for a touchdown. And a lot of times you won't be right. But when you hit it, that's, that punt tight end might be the best feeling in DFS. 
The sweat is real. When you're when you're helping Cole Komet goes three for 30 in a touchdown, the sweat is very real on those plays. But yes, I, I should have mentioned that as well. That's a phenomenal way to save salary. And I usually prescribe to that in cash games for sure. Um, just because, like you said, outside of the top one, two or three guys, like who the heck knows for that week? So you may as well save yourself some salary along the way. So we're going to continue this train in the next couple of weeks. We're going to talk next week about how to approach DFS positionally. So how do you approach quarterback, running back, wide receiver, tight end? We'll even get into defense. I wish we can get into kicker, but uh, the website's kicked them off. I know. I really was that day. I was like, all right, well, there goes all my analysis for kicker rankings on FanDuel. Oh, well. I I basically have no role in this team anymore. That's all I was hired to do. I thought I had this niche kind of content space thing that people would just in droves come and listen to kicker takes, but they don't really care about it anymore. But we're going to talk about those positions next week, and then we're going to slowly get into more and more strategy as we get through July. So thanks for listening to us, Bets. Why don't you tell the people how awesome they are? Oh, you guys are the greatest. Hopefully you enjoyed this show. Make sure you subscribe. We'll be back next week. Have a great week. Thank you for listening to another edition of the Fantasy Footballers DFS podcast. Don't forget to visit us on the web at www.thefantasyfootballers.com.